All right, well, good morning, Redemption Hill. It's great to be with you folks. This is our first time actually in your new venue here at Medford High School and been tracking with your ministry, as my brother John said, for many years and just really believe the best days are ahead for what God has in store for your ministry. And it's just a real joy and a privilege for me to be here with you today. I love your, I love your pastoral team. I love the heartbeat that each of them brings to this ministry. And I just love what God is doing in your church here. And you know, the reality is, any of you know, know me know that I really just love the church. A couple Sundays ago, I was off and my wife and I had a chance to worship at another church across town from where we live, another denomination, but a wonderful church that God is using in some great ways. I just love the heart of the pastor and be able to bless him. Over the years, I've had an opportunity to worship with some of the partner churches that our congregation uh, is linked with globally in Rwanda and Kenya and Indonesia and Honduras and many different places around the world. And it's just there's a joy and a privilege like there is today to be here with you at Redemption Hill, to be with people who love Christ and love to worship Him and love to really grow together in the kingdom work. So it's a privilege to be here today. And as I mentioned, I love your pastor, Tanner. I trust he's getting rested up and is going to come back more fired up and stronger than ever before, which will be a blessing to you guys. And you guys have the double blessing because you don't just have one Pastor John, you have two Pastor Johns. Pastor John Chastine, great guy, and of course, my brother uh, John, uh, who mentioned he looks to me for you know, all this wisdom and insight and so on. But the reality is I've been looking to him for a long time, and uh, he is someone who has a lot of wisdom and uh, a lot of insight, a lot of leadership, uh, organizational skills, and I just know that you guys are blessed to have him on your team with the others, and uh, it's a joy for me just to kind of be a voice of encouragement to all of you guys. And when you get my brother John, you get his wife Teresa, part of the package deal, and uh, remember fondly years ago, my wife Karen and I were with John and Teresa. We had a little trip down to Washington, D.C., and we knew something Teresa didn't know, and that is that John was going to pop the question to her along the banks of the Potomac. And so we were there the night that they got engaged, and it's been a wonderful partnership. Wouldn't you agree? Ever since. And uh, we're grateful for them uh, as well. Well, I just want to say that I love your church. I love your vision. I was online the other day and just love what Pastor Tanner had to share, that you guys are a church that is in Medford, and you are for Medford. And the reason you do soccer camps, and the reason you do service projects, and the reason that you love the diversity of the church, something like 39 nationalities represented in the body of Christ here, man, that's just like a touch of heaven. And I was listening to the vision. I was getting fired up about what God is doing and how you guys have a vision that for this year. You know, that Jesus prayed that the church should be one, that we were not created for isolation, but we were created for community. And so I just want to encourage you to lean into the gift of community, that we are truly better together. And I'm so grateful for the mission that you guys are all about. And of course, ultimately, the mission is centered in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're going to draw together around the Lord's table a little bit later this morning. You know, I've often said that the two most important days in your life, number one is the day that you were born. Right? That's a pretty special day, and we love to celebrate birthdays until you start to get north of 50, and then some people get north of 60, and maybe uh, you know, don't like to celebrate as much, but certainly with kids and grandkids, we love to celebrate birthdays. But the second most important day in your life is the day you discovered the reason why you were born. And there's a lot of people who go through life, and they never discover the reason why they were born. Simon Sinek said that when you understand your why, it, it inspires you. And the Bible teaches that every single one of us, and every one of you who are here today, that you were created by God to have a relationship with him, to know him and to enjoy him and experience the thrill of going through your life, being part of something great. 
something that is even bigger and more significant than your own life. And that is what the kingdom of God is all about. And so I want to be a messenger of encouragement today because I believe that you guys are part of something great right here at Redemption Hill. And I want to encourage you to lean in and to all that God has and to participate in what that mission and vision is all about. And I want to encourage you because I'm a guest pastor here today, but I want to encourage you that one of the best things you can do to encourage your pastors, Pastor Tanner is on sabbatical, Pastor John, Pastor, my brother John as well, one of the best ways you can encourage them is to pray for them. And I was on a, a vision trip a few weeks ago. We had a donor in our church who uh, blessed us and allowed seven members of our lead team. They invested because they believe that what we're doing is part of something great for the kingdom. And they said, we'd love to give a gift so that seven of you can go to this incredible conference several weeks ago in California. And then I have a mentor friend, pastors a great church in Dallas, and I was able to connect with him after the conference. We spent a couple of days in a mentoring relationship with him. And um, whenever I go to cities, I love, I'm kind of like a church junkie when I go on conference trips. So anyone with me, they know that you know, you're up for like three or four services anyways. On the, we love to visit other churches. So on this Saturday night, uh, we were in Fort Worth, Texas, and we had the opportunity to visit one of the multi-sites of the Life Church. And you know Craig Rochelle and his deal going on in Fort Worth, and we went to the church. We met with their staff team, had a wonderful fellowship with them, went to their service. We're really, really blessed. And as our team, as we were leaving the premises that night, and we were saying goodbye to their First Impressions team, there was a guy who was part of the First Impressions team, you know, just handing out bulletins, greeting people in the lobby, and as we were walking past him at the front door, he stopped me, and he said, what are you guys all about? And I told him, I'm a pastor in the east coast of Canada, we have our leadership team traveling and sort of on a vision trip, just trying to listen to discern how God might lead us into the next season of our ministry, and no kidding, we were standing just outside the front door of this church, and I could see the wheels spinning in his, in his head. And he said, man, he said, he said, you're a pastor, East Coast Canada? I said, yeah. He said, do you realize how much responsibility, you know, God has entrusted you with? Man, you, you know, you're, you're doing something really, really important for the kingdom. And he said, would it be okay if I prayed for you? And I said, absolutely, it would be wonderful. And he put his hand on my shoulder on the outside of the front door of this church. And he just prayed one of the most powerful beautiful, edifying prayers anyone had ever prayed for me before. And it actually was deeply moving for me. I got back to the vehicle with the rest of our team, and I actually started to cry as I was telling them about this layman, this person, you know, who's on the first impression team, is game on for the kingdom. He's part of something great, and he prayed for me and just how important it was. And Tom Rayner in his book, I Am a Church Member, envisions every church member, if you would just pray five minutes a day for your pastors and for their families and for the staff team at your church, it would be a really powerful thing. So, you know, Tanner's been blessed with a sabbatical. And I just you know, be praying for him and for the other members of your pastoral team on a regular basis. It's one of the great ways you can bless them. Now, I love Pastor Tanner. In fact, I think he's got a pretty neat name, especially because my wife and I became grandparents for the first time in February, and our grandson, who's actually here today at Redemption Hill, his name is Tanner, Tanner Richard Jessica. I think there's a picture of him, and, and I'll tell you, you know, they talk about how great it is to be a grandparent, and it really is a tremendous joy, and uh, just a little introduction. My wife is here with me today as well, and, um, and we have been blessed with three grown children, a wedding picture of our daughter, Jana, uh, a couple of years ago. We've got another wedding we're planning now for September for our oldest daughter, Kristen, and then also we have our son, Ryan, as well. 
And uh, many of you know, you know my story in terms of from John, that from New England, uh, a military family. I was born in Rhode Island, lived in many different parts of New England and other places beyond. And then in the providence of God, after I came to follow Christ, uh, the Lord led me up to the east coast of Canada to Atlantic Baptist University, a Christian university now called Crandall University. I met my wife. She's uh, from, from that city in Moncton and then came back down to England, went to Gordon-Conwell. And actually, I was thinking that in September, this September will be 30 years that Ken Swetland, the former dean of Gordon-Conwell, actually preached my ordination message in New Brunswick. And uh, it was interesting. I was thinking that, you know, our son Tanner was born on February 13th. And, uh, and we were really excited about that day. And I learned a few days later that Ken Swetland uh, actually passed away on the very same day, February 13th. And, you know, reminder that as we go through life, there are days of joy and days of sadness. But there's no sadness ultimately, right? If you're in the kingdom, it's, you get a promotion to heaven. And so that's where he is as well. Well, I want to talk this morning in your series about 39, some treasures in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah, one of my favorite stories about being, being part of something great. Now, we all are born instinctively with a desire as kids and as we go through school and go through university to want to be part of something great. We want our life to really matter. And of course, there's a lot of something greats happening in New England, right? I mean, man, the, the sporting reality here is just like, this is surreal, Right? How many thank God for the tuck rule? In 2001, it all started there. Remember the snowball? Thank God for the tuck rule. And the Patriots started winning. And then in 04, I was watching the Red Sox finally won it. And I turned to my son. He was nine years old at the time. I said, Ryan, you don't understand, son. There have been people waiting for like 86 years for this to finally happen. And you're nine years old. And now you've actually celebrated three more since that time as well. And, you know, you know Boston's sort of the city of champions, and a lot of people want to sign contracts and play for Boston sports teams because they want to be part of something great. Several weeks ago, when the Bruins were, you know, doing really well in the playoffs, looked like they might win the Stanley Cup, a friend of mine texted me this little uh, picture that's on the screen, and it says, if the Bruins win this year, a 15-year-old kid in Boston has 11 championships, and a 15-year-old kid in Canada has zero I mean, talk about inequity. I mean, sometimes life just isn't fair. Now, this was before the Raptors went on and they won the NBA championship, you know, a few weeks ago. Yeah, any Raptors fans here? Yeah. So, but, you know, sometimes, so I just want to say enjoy, savor, you know, be, being part of something great is happening in terms of the sports scene. But I want to turn your attention this morning to, you know, to, the, to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, some of you know, he was living in 445 BC, a little bit of context, uh, so at 5th century BC, he was living, he was in Susa, which was the capital city of Persia, roughly about 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem, and about 140 years prior to Nehemiah's life in the, in the mid-400 BC, uh, Jerusalem fell, and it was a bad day for, for God's people. God was you know, chastising them, disciplining them because of their waywardness, and I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. And they're going to take over, they're going to destroy Jerusalem, and they're going to exile a whole bunch of you, are going to move you out of this area. Uh, and then after a season, God said, I'm going to do a new work. And several years later, uh, the Babylonians were defeated. And now Persia is the global superpower. And, uh, and they had a much different view of welcoming people back to where they were, openness to freedom of religion. And so in the providence of God, around 445 BC, Nehemiah, he's, you know, a thousand miles away uh, he's now serving as the cupbearer to the king. You've got to understand this little footnote in his biography that, in other words, he was someone in a government position. 
Uh, he basically was the food tester. Uh, he would test the food and the drinks, uh, you know, that were served up to the king. Uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of times food poisoning was a way to assassinate uh, kings in those days. So if the food tester, if he, you know, tested the food and drink, it was okay for him, then the king would go ahead and, uh, and would have his food. And uh, he was in that position. But what you need to realize is that he was not a priest like Ezra, his contemporary. Uh, he was not a prophet. And we know there's many prophets God used in the Old Testament. He was basically a layman. He was in a government position. And yet he realized that God had a calling on his life. And some of you here today, you're not clergy, you're not pastors, but every one of you, God has a calling on your life to be part of something great, to move the kingdom forward. And in chapter 1 and verse 4, the verse on your screen, it says, when Nehemiah, he asked about what's going on in Jerusalem, you know what the answer was? Things are bad. The walls are, haven't been rebuilt. The gates have been you know, burnt on fire. There's low morale. There's, the people are complacent. They're apathetic about the plan and purposes of God. It's a bad day. We're a joke in the eyes of the rest of the nations. And in Nehemiah 1.4, in the message, said, when I heard this, he said, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He said, when I heard this, when I heard that Israel wasn't doing something great for God, that they were beleaguered, they were complacent, they needed a wake-up call in the land to the glory of God, the person of God, he said, it just, it, it, it broke me. And he fasted and he prayed and he had a spirit of contrition before God. And this wasn't just like a quick one and done prayer. For several weeks he was praying and fasting. And then fast forward to chapter 2 uh, and it goes on and it says that finally he went there, he scoped out the walls, he began to not only pray but also get a plan. You see, God wants us to pray but he also wants us to plan. Those who fail to plan basically you know, uh, those who failed to plan basically planned to fail. And so he began to scope out. He got letters of blessing from the king to go there. He got some resources. And then in chapter 2 and verse 17, he said, But now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and, and, and end this disgrace. This is terrible, this disgrace that we're in. And I told them about the, the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king, that God was moving providentially in the heart of a pagan king because of Nehemiah's posture of humility and prayerfulness to God. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work and the wall was completed. It goes on to say in chapter 6 and verse 15, on the 25th of Elul, that's a, a month in the Hebrew calendar, in 52 days, well, you need to realize that what had been torn down for decades was now totally rebuilt. People said, yes, let's be part of something great to glorify God. It's one of the great feats in the Old Testament. And here's what I want you to realize this morning. Before God does something great through you, he first has to do something great in you. And God did something great in Nehemiah when he fasted and he prayed and he began to envision him. And God wants to do something great in you so that he can then do something great through you for his glory, and for his honor. And I want to say that if you're here today and you're a lay person, God has something great he wants to do. Not only does he want to do something great through you collectively as a church family, but he wants to do something great through you in your own personal life. The theme of Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the walls. Let me ask you this morning, do some of you have something in your life that needs to be rebuilt? Maybe your marriage or your family or a relationship? Maybe you're even your relationship with God, that you've become, you know, complacent and apathetic, and you've lost your first love, and God said, you know, today can be the day that you can begin to rebuild. 
Maybe for some of you, it's your influence in the world. God has placed you like he placed Nehemiah in a foreign, in a difficult situation to be a light. He's planted you there in your work environment that you can be a light to him. I love this story about the, the, the Christian who is a plumber and someone asked him, well, what do you do for a living? And he said, oh, he said that, that, that I'm a Christian disguised as a plumber. I love that. Some of you are Christians disguised as teachers. Some of you are Christians disguised as, as engineers. Some of you are Christians disguised as parents. Some of you are Christians disguised as coaches as you worked at soccer camp this week, pouring into the lives of the next generation. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10 that we collectively, we are God's masterpiece. Every one of you who is here today, you are God's masterpiece. You are the poetry he is writing. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us to do. He has some good things for all of us to do, every single one of us. But we need to, we need to seize the day. We need to align our hearts with the heart of God, and he'll do something great in you so that he'll do something great through, through you as well. Carrie and Chris Shook, in their book, One Month to Live, they put it this way. They said, often we are tempted to play it safe for far less than we were made for. I know so many people whose favorite word of the week is someday. Countless people in every stage of life say, someday I'm going to go for all that life has to offer. When I retire, then I'm going to enjoy life. Someday I'm really going to live for God and get my act together. I'll start loving my family better. When I make enough money, then I'm going to spend more time with my kids. Someday, when my schedule slows down, then I'm going to get involved in church. Someday, one day, when, if, and then it's over. When are we going to realize this is life right here, right now, someday? Someday is right now. And this morning, I want to remind us that today is the day that God has envisioned us to be here and to do something special in our life. So if you have your Bibles, if you have the uh, the Bible available uh, in the lobby here, uh, the English Standard Version. I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter 4. So here you get the picture of Nehemiah. God began to speak in his heart. God favored him to go to Jerusalem. He got the passage to go there and cast the vision. Everybody said, yeah, let's, let's rebuild. Let's be part of something great. And then in Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, uh, it says these words. So we built the wall... So they started to build, Nehemiah 4 and verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. In other words, half of the project has been completed. They, you know, they started a lot of excitement, a lot of motivation. They're halfway through this incredible project, for the people had a, had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going, to, going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And, all, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Do you see what's going on? They're halfway through this incredible project. Everybody's engaged. But then they're starting to get tired. They're starting to listen to the negative uh, you know, comments, they're being spiritually attacked, they're beginning to experience self-doubt, are we ever going to, you know, there's, everywhere we look, there's just rubble everywhere, is this job ever going to get done? You see what's settling in here? And so beginning, in, and so it goes on and it says, 
And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and we're going to stop their work. So there's all these threats being made against them. Verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must not, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and I arose, this is Nehemiah speaking, I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. That, that Nehemiah stood up, they were halfway through the project, they saying, listen, you guys are part of something great, but it's too soon to quit, don't give up, don't listen to the naysayers. God is on our side, we need to step up, we need to fight. Because the stakes are sky high. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapons with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and wildly, wide, widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us, our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work. And I love the idea that this is called work. And whether it's ministry and serving at Redemption Hill or this hard labor, this work, it's effort that's required. Half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept the weapon at his right hand. I want to share with you this morning three principles of how do you get from here to there? How do you get from when you have a vision to do something really great for God, you know, where you navigate through the delays and disappointments, the discouragement, where you get halfway through, how do you get to the finish line? How do you get from here to there? And there's some notes in your, in your hand out there this morning, three points I want to share with you. Number one, make sure you have a vision worth fighting for. First of all, make sure that the, the, there, the, the there you're trying to get to is actually something that is worth fighting for. You see, vision always has to do with the future. For example, if you were, wanted to go on a trip to Miami, you probably would book a plane ticket, and you know, you'd go down to Logan, and you'd listen, you'd check out you know, the screen, the, you know, the departure screen to find out you know, where the gate is and where you need to be. And then you, know, you hear the boarding call, and then you get on a plane, and usually the last thing you hear before the, you know, the doors are closed, you'll, you hear a pilot or a flight attendant say, okay, now this is one last reminder, this flight number da, 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 is on its way to Miami, and so check your ticket. If you're not heading to Miami, like if you want to go to Montreal or Mexico or somewhere, this is not the plane you, know, you want to be on, but this is where we're going. Vision always speaks to destination, to a sense of direction that this is where we're going. And it's so important, and I love the vision that you guys have at your church here, to be a church that's in Medford and that's for Medford, a church that really is seeking to build community, a community with God and with one another, and how that can be transformational uh, in an entire region. You know, I mentioned I was at this conference a few, several weeks ago in California at a great church, Bayside Church in the Sacramento area, and during a leadership luncheon, their senior pastor shared with us 
that he and his leadership team went on a desert retreat uh, some time ago just to kind of get away and to pray and to really reflect. And they had one question as a leadership team that they wanted to ask themselves. And the question was this, what kind of vision as a church would we be willing to give our lives to over the next number of years that we would just say, man, I'm all in, you know, count me in, I'm willing to sacrifice, I'm, you know, to give my all. You know, what, what kind of vision would that be? And, and they debated, they had the whiteboard going and fasted and prayed and all of that. And by the end of their desert retreat, Ray Johnson said, we came out of there in total agreement about three things, that what really fired us up and we'd give the rest of our life to as a staff team and as church leaders, that we would be a church that plants churches, a church that strengthens churches, and they have a lot of conferences and ways they mentor other churches to keep getting better for the kingdom. They said, man, we want to be planting churches. We want to be strengthening churches because we believe the church is the hope of the world when it's really working right, when it's filled with vision and people are really engaged. And then thirdly, they said, we want to be a kind of church that, that powerfully pours into the hearts of the next generation. We want to raise up the next generation of church leaders and kingdom leaders, and they do some incredible things in terms of pouring into the hearts of kids and youth and college students an internship program, but, but, you know, the idea that, you know, that they had a vision worth fighting for, and I've been at my church now for 26 years, and, uh, you know, it's so easy to get complacent, you know, the longer that you're someone, and you need to continue to always revisit, you know, what vision is all about. We built a new auditorium about three years ago, and we moved in. It was an exciting time in our church, and during the whole grand opening year, I just kept saying it time and time again. I said, guys, I said, this is not the finish line. This is just the start line to a new chapter. We have, you know, a new auditorium, a new opportunity to, you know, to reach more people and, and be the church never before. So, you know, it's, it's not about, this is not the finish line. And you guys in this new day at Medford High, this is not the finish line. This is the start line to what God wants to do in the continued vision you have. And your vision, it's worth fighting for because the stakes are sky high. And so Nehemiah stood up in Nehemiah 4 and verse 14. And, you know, people were going to throw in the towel. People were ready to quit. They needed some encouragement. He said, listen, I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles, verse 14, and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. Remember the God that we worship, the songs that we sang about him. And the rest of the people, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And I want to encourage you guys to continue to fight, to invest, and be passionate about the vision of this church. And you know, I think of the Apostle Paul. He got to the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and in the Marmentine prison, I visited that prison last year when we were in Rome, and he was at the end of his run. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, listen, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near, but I have fought the good fight. See, there are some fights, some battles that are not worth fighting for, but then there are others that are worth giving your life to. And Paul said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. So what makes a vision from God? Four things if you're taking notes. How do you know a vision is from God? Number one, it's consistent with his revealed will. Whether it's a vision for your life, for your family, for your career, or for your church, it needs to be something that is consistent with God's revealed will, with the principles and the precepts revealed in Scripture. Secondly, it, need, it requires faith. If a vision is really from God, the one thing that really fires God up, that, that he loves to see in his people, is faith. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, 
It is impossible to please God. And it doesn't say it's improbable. It says it's impossible. In other words, if you're trying to accomplish something that you can accomplish with your own skill set and your own abilities and resources and you don't need God, that's not really a vision from God. God is looking for a vision where people realize that unless God is in this, it is utterly going to fail. Unless God resources it, unless God brings the people, unless God you know, helps us through some of the adversity that we're facing, it'll never, ever succeed. Uh, Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, years ago, he said that every enduring organization needs to have what he called BHAGs, which stood for Big, Holy, Audacious Goals. And I often tell our people what we need are BHAPs, and that is Big, Holy, Audacious Prayers. That we need to be praying on our knees, passionately before God. Big, are they big? Are they holy? Aligned with the kingdom, are they, you know, audacious and, are, and, and to pray? And uh, over the last year and a half, we actually have had, we call them four bold prayers. It's actually a big banner in our auditorium. We have uh, bold prayer cards, they're printed, and, and uh, we've been praying over the next number of months that God would continue to uh, these four bold prayers, that every person would be deepened in personal prayer. That's a bold prayer we have. We want every congregant, every person in our church to continue to be deepening in their relationship of prayer, their personal relationship with God. Uh, a second bold prayer is that, that we would continue to reach out to our friends who are far from Christ, to be an invitational culture. You know, friends of Jesus tell their friends about Jesus, and we're continually encouraging people to be praying. Who are you praying for? Who are you inviting? Who are you reaching out to? We want to be a church that finds, and uh, we want to help people find and then follow Jesus, come discover who he is, and then begin to follow him. And then our third bold prayer is all about, we had a reimagine campaign and encouraging people to deepen their commitment uh, to the, this investment of making room for more, the, the new auditorium things that we've been doing that way, they would engage, further engage in our mission collectively. And then our fourth bold prayer is all about families and pray that we would fight. We're praying we fight for every hillside family and some who are navigating divorce and going through our divorce care program, uh, some who have prodigal sons and daughters, uh, some who are newer believers and really don't understand what it means to to help kids grow in their relationship with Christ. We want to fight for every family. But, so it needs to be a vision that's consistent with Scripture. It requires faith. Number three, extends blessing to others, right? That if we have a vision for ourselves or for our church that's just very self-centered and me-focused, that really isn't a vision from God. But God teaches us we've been blessed in order to be a blessing. And when I think about your vision as a church, to be in Medford and to be for Medford and to bring hope and bring encouragement and to bring the kingdom of God is a powerful thing. And then finally, it glorifies God. Does this vision for my life or for our church to be part of something great, does it really glorify God? And that's what happened here in Nehemiah. It said in chapter 6 and verse 15, the wall was completed. They continued the work, and get this, 52 days, the wall was completed. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of of our God. Isn't that powerful? That they realize, man, this would, you know, the God of, of Israel is such an amazing God. They couldn't have done this in their own strength. And so God was glorified. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 and verse 20 said, you know, don't ever underestimate what God can do. I think a lot of times we, you know, we, we overestimate what we can do in the short term, but underestimate what God can do over a series of years in our lives. But in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 20, 
Paul said, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can all ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. You see, God works in us in order to work through us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So first of all, you need to have make sure a vision that's worth fighting for. Secondly, how do you get from here to there? Second thing is get everyone engaged. Get everyone engaged. You know, I believe the real important metric in church world today in North America is not just church attendance, but it's church engagement. In our congregation, you know, we say that we count people because, every, because people count. Every person, every child, every senior, every single mom, every person who comes through the door at a church on a Sunday morning matters to God, therefore they matter to us. But we don't just count people, we count discipleship steps. That we want to you know, be a place where we're helping people get engaged to serve. And 150 volunteers at soccer camp this week, that's amazing. That's engagement. And helping people, you know, to take a step of baptism, to, to take a step of, uh, of attending, uh, you know, a class or a small group that will help them grow in their life. I mean, put it this way. Can you imagine Bill Belichick during training camp this summer gathering together the team and said, look, you know, we've won six Super Bowls, you know, during my watch last number of years, but let's, let's gear up. We're going to go for number seven this year. I believe we're going to have the best team ever. We're going to win number seven. That's our, we're committed to that. And, and, you know, there's some new players, some people they've signed. There's some new rookies who haven't been part of the culture. And so he's given this big pep talk. You know, this is where we're going. We're going to go from here to there. We're going to win championship number seven on my watch this year. But here's the deal. Um, you know, like, if you guys don't really want to, um, you know, show up on time for practice once in a while, that's okay. No big deal. Uh, you know, you linemen, if you don't want to do your homework and read the plays that you need to know, you know, when your name gets called and we're calling certain plays, if you don't want to do your homework, you know, I mean, you know, that's okay. Or if we're on the road and, you know, we have curfew, uh, you know, if you want to stay out late and party with the guy, you know, that's okay. As long as you show up the next day for the game, we'll, we'll be cool with that. I mean, can you imagine Coach Belichick saying something like that? Absolutely not. I mean, he's all about do your job, right? We're counting on you. Be ready. When your number gets called, you've got to do your job. Do your homework. Bring it. And yet, I think a lot of times in churches around North America, there's this idea that, you know, we really don't need to engage people to do their very best work. But in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all, notice that we... The power of we, I saw it on your banner as I came in this morning, that we all returned to our work on the wall. Everybody was all in. Everybody had a role to play, and every role mattered. And friends, that's why the early church, when they were captured by a vision to be part of something great, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, they said, we are all in. You see, Low devotion churches result in low impact. I've never come to a church that is all about low devotion where God brings about great impact. Low devotion churches equal low impact, but high devotion churches where people are engaged and they're serving and they're praying and they're excited about what God is doing, they're part of something great. High devotion equals high impact. That's where real transformation, where evangelism and discipleship and kingdom generosity, that's where it really takes place. And so in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, in the message says, the whole congregation in Jerusalem were united as one, one heart, one mind, and they were serving, and they were giving, and they were blessing, and they were all in, they were high devotion, and they were having a high impact, and that's exactly what happened here in the story of Nehemiah. Everybody was engaged. 
Why is the church so important today? If you're taking notes, the answer is because the church is God's plan A to redeem a broken world. In the plan of God, the church is God's primary instrument to bring hope and redemption and new life to the world. It's not his only way. God is sovereign. He can do it. He can advance his kingdom in any way he likes, but his primary strategy is through the local church. So if you want to be part of something great, something that is near to the heart of God, jump in, dive in, be all in, be engaged to the church. But the problem is, as I look around North America today, churches in the East Coast of Canada, we got a lot of them, you know, that are just low devotion and people are not really engaged. Uh, You know, it's kind of like a cruise culture, cruise ship culture that's taking place in a lot of our churches You ever been on a cruise? My wife and I went on our first cruise last year. Uh, Our board surprised us. It was the 25-year anniversary of being at Hillside, and and they surprised us one Sunday. They gave us a travel voucher, said, you know, you guys go on a trip, and we always wanted to go on a Mediterranean cruise, and so it was an incredible thing. I can tell you this, it won't be our last cruise. It was a really a wonderful thing. I mean, who doesn't love cruises, right? You go on a cruise, they wait on your hand and foot, the food is great, entertainment every single night, they make your bed, then when you come back for break, you know, you're always wondering what's the new towel animal configuration, you know, in your cabin. I mean, you know, just everybody's happy, everybody's smiling, everybody's there just to serve you and to wait on you. Well, that's good maybe for a little vacation, but it's not the way the church should be, but a lot of people have the mentality, the church like a cruise ship. People are just here to serve me, wait upon me, bless me, feed me. But when in fact, the vision for the church is that we're not to be a cruise ship, we're to be like a salvage ship. And there's a huge difference. A salvage ship is out on the, in the midst of the storms of life and the raging seas. They're taking risks and they're out to, to rescue and to save that which is lost. And there's a sense of Uh, you know, of desperateness, a sense of urgency of what they're doing. It's not about them, but it's about how they have been designed and equipped in order to bring hope and encouragement and life to others. And we need more churches to discover that reality, to be engaged. A good friend of mine pastors a great church out in Western Canada. He said that leadership is the gift that enables all the other gifts to flourish. And I love that. That's a picture of the church, that, that when a church is really well-led, leadership is invisible, but, but it's, that enables all the other gifts to flourish and people to be serving. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 4 <clears throat> in your notes, where Paul says, he has given each one of us, that includes every one of you who is here today, every one of you has been given a special gift through the generosity of Christ. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. The church can be great when it's working right, when when everyone is engaged, when it's a salvage ship mindset, not the cruise ship mindset. Tom Rayner in his book, I Am a Church Member, we give this book to every new member who goes through the membership class at our church. And in this book, I love what Tom says, and I quote, he said, based on research, From 2004 to 2010, nine out of 10 churches in America are declining or growing at a pace that is slower than that of their communities. Simply stated, churches are losing ground in their own backyards. I am suggesting that congregations across North America are weak because many of our church members have lost the biblical understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. We join our churches expecting others to serve us, to feed us, and to care for us. We don't like the hypocrites in the church, but we, fall, but we fail to see our own hypocrisies. God did not give us local churches to become country clubs where membership means we have privileges and perks. He placed us in churches to serve 
to care for others, to pray for leaders, to learn, to give, and in some cases to die for the sake of the gospel. Many churches are weak because we have members who have turned the meaning of membership upside down. It's time to get it right. It's time to become a church member as God intended it. It's time to give instead of being entitled. And in Nehemiah, they were able to accomplish what they did. God favored them because they were all in. So you need to, if you're going to get from here to there, you have to have a vision worth fighting for. You need to remember that everybody needs to be engaged. And then finally, you need to find some ways to be resilient. You need to find some ways to be <clears throat> resilient along the way uh, because there are seasons and days and, and chapters in life and ministry and vision fulfillment and discouragement can be universal. We all experience, you know, sometimes discouragement. Notice it says here in verses 10 and 11, the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. In other words, there's some fatigue. They're doing a great work, but they're starting to get tired. There's fatigue setting in. There's so much rubble. They look around and they say, man, we've worked so hard. We're halfway through, but look at all the stones. Look at all the work that still is left. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies are saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them, we'll kill them, and we will end their work. Listen, whenever you're doing something great for God, expect opposition. Expect that it won't be easy, that it requires work and effort. But the interesting thing in this passage is that, you know, you never win a championship without substitutes. Did you know that? You never, ever win a championship you know, in the sporting world or other, without substitutes, without teammates, without coworkers and colleagues. And we need to rely upon others and experience replenishment along the way. I remember probably 20 years ago uh, going through a very difficult uh, season at our church. And um, I went to a conference in the middle of this difficult season at Moody. It was Moody Pastors Conference at Moody uh, Bible College down in Chicago, and I was feeling kind of tired and discouraged. I remember walking in for the opening session that night in, in the auditorium, and there's a huge banner just strewn across the back of the stage. And in big, bold letters, it had the words, relax, for once you're not in charge. Relax, for once. You know, sometimes as pastors and leaders, and maybe as parents, and some of you in leadership roles in employment, you know, you're always in charge. You're always giving leadership. But we need to be reminded periodically that we're not in charge. And we need practices and habits of the Sabbath and of rest. And Paul said in Romans 12, verse 11, don't burn out. You know, keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Paul had to say that as well. Just like we see here in the story uh, of Nehemiah, that, that we need the help of others and to continue to work and to realize that we need some replenishment strategies along the way. And maybe some of you right now are feeling discouraged. And the Lord is saying, you know, that... You need to help, allow some other people to help you. Maybe you need to restructure your life a little bit if you're serving in areas that are outside of your giftedness. I have a pastor friend of mine, a mentor, who told me that basically every summer, one of the things he does is he actually rewrites his job description every year because he's in a growing ministry. And if he's doing things that are not in his area of giftedness, that are not going to serve the ministry best, that maybe are depleted, that he wants to focus and everybody wins when those type of changes take place. And you go on in the story of Nehemiah that once they, once they built the wall, I love this, it was time for a celebration. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, I kind of close with this. It says in Nehemiah chapter 8, um, when God's word was read and they realized again that part of the 
big reason why they're in the predicament they were in is because they had become ignorant and wayward toward the things of God, and they started to weep and grieve about how they had dishonored God in their life. And, but the Lord said, you know, this is not a time to weep. This is a time to celebrate. You guys have just been part of an incredible thing. And sometimes in churches, we need to build in some celebration moments when we work hard on something. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10, it says, he continued, go home and prepare a feast, holiday food and drink, and share it with those who don't have anything. This day, it's holy to God. Don't feel bad. The joy of God is your strength. In other words, like throw this incredible party and take time to celebrate. Ministry is relentless, and so when you guys work hard, you know, you need to build and celebrate some wins along the way, and it's life-giving. It recharges your batteries and practicing Sabbath and other things. Friends, I came here today just to encourage you. I'm just so excited about your ministry and, uh, you know, that God wants to do something in you so he can do something through you to be part of something great, and you guys are part of something great here, and just remember, you know, keep the vision clear. You know, invest and fight for a vision that really matters. Make sure everybody is engaged and practice resiliency along the way. And uh, Dave Ferguson has an incredible book that our, our leadership team have been reading together and conversing with Dave about in recent weeks, this book called Hero Maker. And I want to just read this quote that Dave pastors an incredible church in Chicagoland. And he says these words, he said, deep down, our sincere greatest fear is to live a life of insignificance. To come to the end of our life and feel like we never really did anything that mattered, that is our greatest fear. And I think he's right. You know, to get to the end of your life and look back and say, man, did I really live for something that really mattered, that was really significant? And in this book, Dave talks about, you know, it's not about you, but it's about becoming a hero maker, making heroes of other people, pouring into their lives, calling out the, the activity of God in their lives so that his name would be glorified. So friends, be part of something great. And uh, because what you're doing, it really, really matters to this whole area to be a lighthouse church for him. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you for the joy and the privilege of being here with my brothers and sisters at Redemption Hill. I thank you for the courage and the clarity of the vision that you have planted in their hearts. Father, I want to pray a blessing on Tanner, the pastor, as he is away. Continue to replenish and stir and breathe new thoughts into his mind, into his heart, into his soul. Lord, that when he rejoins the team here in mid-August with Pastor John and, and Pastor John Reddy as well, Lord, and the rest of the team, that they would be really energized anew as they launch into the fall season and fulfill Vision 2019, Lord, that the power of we, and Lord, that together in all of these things, that your name would be glorified. And uh, Father, we thank you that all of this is possible not because what we have done, but what has been done for us 2,000 years ago, your great plan of redemption, when Jesus came and he gave his life on the cross, and he said, it is finished. As we remember the bread and the cup, may we, Father, continue to be fully surrendered to you, for we ask it in Jesus' name.